back to Autism Confidential, the podcast from the National Council on Severe Autism. My name is Jill Escher. I am your host today, and I am president of NCSA. We are now entering part two of our mini podcast series with Melissa Harris, who is deputy director of the Disabled and Elderly Health Programs Group at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Uh, welcome back. Thank you for being back with us for part two. Um, Thank you, my pleasure. So if you listen to the first episode um, with, uh, with Melissa, we went over all kinds of uh, information relating to HCBS and also ICF services funded by Medicaid. And this um, episode will focus on a specific issue and that has to do with the settings rule um, that, um, oh gosh, I can't remember, 2013? It was 2014, it was, 2014, uh, off it by was a year. finalized, yes. And, um, but now it's being implemented. And it is a rule, you, you've probably heard of the settings rule, but basically it says, hey, you know, uh, we aren't gonna pay for HCBS services in your state if it's, uh, or in, in a, for, in a, for a particular beneficiary in your state, if that beneficiary is in a setting that's deemed institutional-like. So, um, you know, in most cases, um, it's defined as a setting that is deemed too isolating and not integrated sufficiently um, in the community. And this has been um, highly controversial, to put it lightly. Um, I won't, uh, you know, give you uh, a huge amount of background on it, because I just want to get into, into some questions with Melissa here. But, um, but the concern from the, the community of those who, who care for those with, for, for adults with severe forms of autism and severe you know, behavioral, um, you know, involved um, developmental disabilities, the issue has been um, that it seems to be inherently discriminatory against settings that are most appropriate for people with very challenging and complex needs. And it's not at all discriminatory against the settings um, that are more appropriate for those who are higher functioning. So it's sort of, um, it's tipped the scales uh, in favor of, of certain settings um, that are more uh, kind of generic and away from settings that are more, um, more, more replete with amenities and safeguards needed by our community. So that's, I've tried to put that in, in a nutshell. But um, let, let's get into some of the questions here. Um, you know, one, one question that, that we hear a lot is that the settings rule is sort of an unfunded mandate, that it seems to add more and more costs um, to providers um, that they don't have in order to, to comply with this rule. Um, you know, they need more rooms, they need more beds, they need more um, uh, uh, staff, right, to, to implement individualized planning. How, how have you guys responded to that question? Thanks. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity too. And I'll, I'll say a couple of things about the, the settings rule. Um, you know, this was, we just two weeks ago, I think, um, crossed a threshold and are now on 
we are now outside of a transition period associated with that regulation. Uh, it was first published in March of 20, well, it was published in January of 2014, effective in March of 2014, because that, re that regulation did a whole lot of things about the 1915C waiver authority. Um, what we said for the settings criteria specifically is that we knew that there would be some time necessary for states and providers to come to compliance with those requirements. And so we initiated a transition period that was meant to be five years and ended up being nine. Um, it, it was most recently extended because of the public health emergency and because the the national focus was on pandemic relief, pandemic safety, and it really was not on ways to facilitate individuals going into and, and interacting in their community. So uh, we, we just now uh, ended the transition period on the 17th of March uh, associated with the regulation. It is safe to say that it is still a work in progress for most states in the country to be implementing this though. Uh, while the whole reg has gone live in seven states, the rest of the, the states have corrective action plans on file and, and are in the process of receiving CMS approval for those corrective action plans that allow additional time uh, to wrap up implementation. But I want to give first the, the quickest of overviews about what we're talking about when we say uh, a setting has to meet these home and uh, these, this criteria of a home and community-based setting. Um, you know, the, there are a couple of different categories of setting that we're talking about in this reg, um, and some criteria that applies to all of them, and some criteria that apply to a subset of them. Um, and we embarked on this regulation because even though home and community-based services have been around since the early 80s, there wasn't really a lot of guiding federal principle about what it meant to be in a home and community-based setting and how that was distinguished from an institutional setting. And this is not to automatically cast dispersions on institutional settings. It's to say that there should be differences between the two a home and community-based setting should not be confused for an institutional setting. Uh, institutions obviously continue to be funded by the Medicaid program, but if you're if a state is receiving funding for a home and community-based services program, there should be a meaningful difference, uh, you know, in, 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 uh, in how individuals are living across those two types of, of settings. So we issued this regulation that's, that said, look, there are, some, there are some basics that define a home and community-based setting. And across the board, that meant things like an individual being able to control his or her personal finances, uh, an individual being treated with privacy and dignity and respect and freedom from coercion and restraint, and uh, a setting facilitating an individual integrating into their community uh, as, as much as individuals not receiving Medicaid, HCBS would integrate in their community. What the reg calls uh, provider-owned or controlled residential settings, uh, like group homes, assisted living facilities, etc. Additional requirements like the individual at their door have access to food at any time, access to visitors at time, have a lease 
that protects them from unlawful evictions and has the same kind of protections that a lease in that, that jurisdiction has. And then really importantly, and then the point I, I want to harp on for a minute, is employs a person-centered plan as the document that would articulate any kind of individual modifications um, where an individual um, you know, might, might need to have a, uh, a, a, state, a statement or a restriction uh, about how they are receiving services. Like uh, if someone has um, uh, a, a type of disease, for example, or condition that makes it unsafe for them to have access to food at any time. Uh, that individual's person-centered plan should say, you know, this individual needs to be monitored to make sure they are not accessing food in an unhealthy way. Uh, if they uh, have a, a health condition that uh, makes it questionable for their safety that they should be able to lock their door, that kind of modification should be spelled out, uh, you know, in, in their uh, person-centered plan. The, the whole framework for home and community-based services is based on this person-centered plan, which recognizes that one person is different from the next. I've heard this reg be described as a one-size-fits-all solution, and I couldn't disagree with that more uh, because nothing about person-centered planning lends itself to a one-size-fits-all mentality. Um, the, and, and that's part of the challenge, frankly, is making sure that providers have the, the awareness, the experience, the tools needed to be nimble enough to recognize that they are serving individuals that are all different people and have all different types of needs and desires and access to natural supports. And so a lot of the education we've been doing to states and providers this whole nine-year period has in some cases been debunking misinformation about what the rule was designed to do and to make sure providers understood what the federal reg said and what are the decisions that a state could make that might go beyond what the federal rule requires. And so you know, I'll come back to your questions about unfunded mandates and, and you know, being discriminatory to settings that are serving people with more complex needs. Because certainly that's not the intent of the regulation. And we're only going to declare success in implementation of this reg if as many providers as possible achieve compliance with this regulation, stay in the, sorry, I knew, I knew some phone was going to ring with my cell phone, not my landline. Um, stay in the business of providing Medicaid funded home and community-based services so that individuals have as much of a choice as possible to find a setting that is going to meet their needs. And as families are looking across the menu of available settings in their state, trying to help their loved one find a setting that's gonna meet their needs, they need to have a choice uh, of setting in order to do so. And so we have been in conversation with a lot of settings that have been developed to provide a really distinctive environment for people, be it individuals with autism, individuals with another type of intellectual or developmental. You are muted, Jill. <laughs> thank you. I'm trying to insert a question, but I'm muted. Okay, I'm gonna, thank you for noticing my gesture. Um, so here's my question. 
you said you've been in conversation with settings, right? But mm-hmm. the setting is the setting the Medicaid recipient? No, the Medicaid, the waiver recipient is who you have jurisdiction over. You, you don't have jurisdiction over a setting, right? So like I'm a, for example, I'm a, I'm a low-income housing provider here in the San Francisco Bay Area. I have a 12-plex building, right? And it's my preference to rent to adults with developmental disabilities, right? You don't have jurisdiction over me. I'm a landlord. I just rent out to people, right? You can't come at me, right? I, I don't understand how the Medicaid authorization gives CMS authority over a landlord who is not a Medicaid provider. Can you explain? That, that, that's a great question. So the, the entity that is being regulated in mm-hmm. the settings role is the state. It's the state Medicaid agency, because in, to, to your point, they really are the only entity that CMS can regulate in Medicaid. If you look at our Medicare counterparts, they have direct reach and a direct relationship with providers, particularly institutional providers, but not exclusively. So there's, you know, they interact directly with nursing homes, hospitals, ICFs, home health agencies, dialysis facilities, you know, you, you name it. Our relationship in Medicaid is with the state Medicaid agencies. And we authorize federal funds to go to reimburse the state for their expenditures for their Medicaid population when the state is administering or providing those services according to federal parameters. And the settings rule says to a state, your ability to continue receiving Medicaid reimbursement for home and community-based services is conditioned on you making sure that the settings in which those services are provided in are compliant with the regulation. But again, Uh, they can't, the state Medicaid authority has no jurisdiction over me. I don't even know what kind of waivers, what kind of funding my tenants have. That's not my business. They can't direct me to do anything. I am not, I have no involvement in the Medicaid system as a landlord. So explain to me how the state could force me to do something. Most of the settings that we're talking about are Medicaid providers. And so the state does have a business relationship with Medicaid providers. The state has entered into a contract, so to speak. Okay, so that Medicaid would be like providers. a group home provider, for example. Uh, it, that's an example of one, yes. Um, it could be, and a lot of these, and to, to you know, go back to the residential settings, because that's where a lot of this uh, you know, conversation ends up. Um, a lot of these settings are are both a housing and a services environment. So I, as the Medicaid beneficiary, am living somewhere and receiving services from All my tenants receive services though. Not from me, but they receive services. Yeah. Yeah. And yes, and you've got company there. Um, In in some cases, uh, and so the, you know, part of the the implementation approach is for the state to look at all of the settings in which home and community-based services are being provided in. You know, HCBS can be provided in someone's private home. 
you know, like the, the or the home, you know, a, a child lives in with his or her parents. That can be a setting in which um, HCBS is provided. Mm-hmm. We've indicated really from the beginning that we are deeming those private residences to be compliant with the settings criteria. It's when we get outside of private residences and there is a there is a relationship between the Medicaid beneficiary, the person receiving services, mm-hmm. and whoever is really calling the shots on where, in, in terms of you know where they live, be it uh, a group home provider, um, a uh, an entity that is operating you know an intentional community, for example, a farmstead, or, or you know whatever, uh, even a. Uh, a setting that, um, you know, maybe is not an actual provider of Medicaid services, but has ownership of the building such that they get to determine who lives there and whether you have, quote, you know, too, too, too many service needs to live there. That's, that is what our regulation defines as a provider owned or controlled residential setting. And it has tipped the balance away from the beneficiary and to the owner of this facility or this setting. And the settings criteria, the settings regulation is designed to say, we're not trying to come in and and say, you can't operate that model of, of ownership. We're saying to flow for the services received by that beneficiary that setting needs to meet some basic tenets, uh, like, like letting somebody decorate their own space, have access to food visitors, you know, and have, and have that lease. Um, it's the, none of this criteria was meant to be, uh, like, a, the Holy grail or, you know, un, unattainable or some kind of gotcha. Uh, and we have been really pleased to see that there has been a lot of We're getting more of that technical. Sorry, we've had a couple of glitches along the way. You've been freezing. Oh no! Now she froze and now she's gone. <laughs> now Sorry, you're back. I was, so, I was so afraid that was going to happen. I've been getting those. Your connection is unstable. Little, yeah, you know, banners, yeah. You've been. We've um, had the whole glitches, time. but um, most for the most part, we could understand you. We just lost you right there. But so please. Go yes. Ahead. All of a sudden, I was looking at a blank screen. So yeah. uh, apologies for that. Um, so, you know, again, our, our, we have seen some systemic changes being made by providers. Once they realized we were not out to terminate them from existence, A, and, you know, I think a lot of providers saw themselves in a, in a bullseye when this regulation was coming out and sure. thought the government is trying to, to, you know, get rid of me as a, an HCBS provider. That's not the case. Our, our goal is not to pass judgment that provider A is better than provider B or the look of provider A is better, is better than the look of provider B. Different people with different needs and different preferences are going to want to have choices of, of you know, different types of, of settings. The goal is to make sure that all of those settings, regardless of where they're located in an urban or rural area, regardless of whether they are uh, a day center or um, uh, a, a day have uh, setting, regardless of whether it's a group home or a farmstead or an assisted living, that all of those settings are meeting some basic expectations that really 
are part of the lived experience that most people take for granted and don't even realize, you know, it's not available uh, to other people uh, with because they have a disability or are an older adult. With that said, even looking at those basic requirements in the regulation, there are some people um, based on their needs um, and based on the supports that are available to them um, for whom it is, it is going, for, for whom community integration is going to look different than other people uh, and, for, and whose person-centered service plans are going to be far more complex than others and have different goals and different needs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for some individuals, it might be that they really want to return to the workforce. For some individuals, that's not really in, you know, a, a, a realistic goal. We get that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we would expect the person-centered plans across those individuals to bear out those different differences and reflect those differences. Right. You know, I think providers also thought that, you know, we were expecting some kind of forced integration into the community or expecting providers to kind of turn people out in the morning and not accept them back in until, you know, until it was dark. Um, you know, th- this is all to be driven by the, the needs and preferences of, of Medicaid beneficiaries. And that does put some expectations on providers to say, you know, you're not delivering, to, to go back to the one size fits all, you're not delivering a model of services that, uh, you know, that treats everyone the same or says, you know, we're, we're declaring success in, in meeting your community integration needs by saying we're all going to the library on Thursday. Or, you know, this, this house of worship is coming into this setting on Sunday. So we've checked that box and moved on. It's, you know, it's, it's really saying, you know, you, you need to establish relationships, partnerships with community organizations. You need to look at your transportation options. You don't have to have a a van, you know, for your setting, but you need to, to develop relationships with, um, the, the local transportation um, carriers, Uber and Lyft, you know, has kind of been a game changer. Again, not that every person is going to experience those in the same way, but these are now the expectations that we are saying to states, you need to make sure your providers are doing in order for you to continue collecting federal reimbursement of, uh, of HCBS. And so I, I think as time passed, uh, you know, as, as we kept honing in on that message that we're not coming for you. We're here to make sure you succeed. And, you know, we're here to recognize that it it is a heavier lift, particularly now, particularly as we are all reeling from two plus years of kind of necessitated isolation. Uh, And as we are continuing to, to bear the, the, the brunt of um, the direct service workforce shortages, it's, it's hard to do that kind of community integration. We get that. And that's one of the key reasons why we are authorizing additional implementation time for states associated with this reg given to them through corrective action plans. Um, one thing that I found really troubling, though, about uh, the, the settings role, among other things, is that states can be more restrictive than the federal rule. And um, it does seem to me that sometimes those state restrictions are 
number one, discriminatory against those with complex needs. And number two, really designed to put, exert a chilling effect on the creation of new capacity. And that of course is counter to the actual needs in the community as the adult autism population grows. And as the adult um, autism parent <laughs> population um, begins to grow more, more infirm and more in need of out of home care. Why is it that states can be more, more restrictive? And when do you come in and say, wait, you're, you, you aren't providing those options. Like you just spoke quite rightly about the options that are needed really across the, the table for, for this very diverse population of adults. Um, what, 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 what should CMS be doing to ensure that the options are there on the table and that the restrictions aren't unduly uh, prohibitive of you know settings that that would serve people with behaviors who can't go you know sit in an apartment all day. So I'll start with answering the question about why states have the ability to um, establish additional criteria. Um, you know because Medicaid is this federal state partnership, and for every dollar of of um, cost associated with providing a Medicaid service to a beneficiary, the state's bearing some of that cost and CMS, the federal government, is bearing some of that cost. So a state is a partial funder of Medicaid services. And because of that, you know, they've got a, a voice, you know, in, um, uh, in delivering and uh, in, in shaping their Medicaid program. They have quite a voice in, in shaping optional services uh, like these waiver services. And so we have long said in any type of Medicaid service, not just uh, HCBS, that there are federal expectations that must be met in order for federal dollars to flow. Um, and then a state as, as the other half of the funder uh, for Medicaid services, states often have their own federal regulations. Sometimes there are federal legislative statutes handed down by their state legislatures. They have their own um, agreements with their health plans that determine how services are, are offered. And so the state is its own kind of, um, has, it, has its you know, own array of mechanisms. And as long as the state is not, um, as long as the state continues to abide by a federal regulation, nothing is prohibiting them from tacking on additional requirements. So for example, one of the misconceptions in the earlier days the reg was that the, the settings rule included a bed size uh, in terms of a home and community-based setting, like uh, an HCBS setting cannot be bigger than six beds, for example, and I'm making up that number, but we heard time and time again that, you know, hey, how come there's this bed size, you know, in your rules? Well, point of fact, there is no bed size uh, mm -hmm. or, or, um, um, or, or, or physical footprint size uh, right. of the uh, of a setting that passes muster federally. Right. We do know of some states who have translated the federal regs or said, I, I see where they are and I want to go beyond the federal reg to say, in my state, we're not gonna do business with a residential provider bigger than X number of beds. Can a state make that decision? Yes. Are we going to prohibit them from making that decision? No. But what it does mean is that to your point, the state needs to make sure at the end of the day, if they're losing providers that are over that bed size, um, 
that what's left, who's left provider-wise is sufficient to meet the needs of their population. So decisions made with the best of intentions at the state level to really reorient their home and community-based provider network need to be done with care towards making sure that the, the, there are enough of those smaller providers to meet the service needs of their beneficiaries. That kind of state obligation is constant. You know, the states, again, have to ensure the health and welfare of their waiver recipients, their HCBS recipients. And, you know, the, that means those their, their, their support needs and service needs have to be met by providers in that state. And if they are taking an action that you know, really, you know, chops down the number of providers available, are they still going to be able to adhere to those assurances? Not just on well, paper to the federal government, but, but in reality. Heart, but that's the heart of the matter is reality, right? The heart of the matter is, I, I think it's inarguable, right? That we are very short of capacity, right? In our communities to meet the needs of adults with autism, particularly those who have challenging and complex behaviors. Um, we see it every day in our inbox at, at NCSA. We see it every day on our social media. This is not a difficult thing to, to grasp. We see it in the steadily rising numbers, right? In this population. Um, uh, I, I, I guess I just can't understand why the federal government, um, which has an obligation uh, via the taxpayers to this entirety of the IDD population, not just a subset of it, but the entirety of it, um, can't make absolutely sure that we are maximizing the options available. And CMS is not doing, although I think from what I've seen from um, the heightened scrutiny reports, we do see, for example, these intentional communities passing heightened scrutiny, right? It's not like there's, they're not prohibited. You're absolutely right about that. But I do think that there are completely unnecessary, arbitrary um, limitations on, on the variety of, of options that are out there. And that's just one thing that kind of has baffled me as somebody kind of new to this field. Uh, I, I couldn't uh, under, understand it. And I, I feel like um, you know, when you're talking about, I, I hate to kind of bring up something you mentioned before uh, in, the, in the last episode, you know, you talked about the isolation of the DSPs, the loneliness of these jobs, you know, they're kind of going from one person to one person. Well, this isolation and loneliness is also a great reality, right, for our population um, that sometimes, not always, but sometimes does really benefit from a bigger setting, a more congregate setting, a, a setting with the right amenities. Um, it seems to me that it uh, it is kind of violating their rights, right? If, if states can say, oh, nope, four bedrooms and that's it, <laughs> right? Because we know that, that like, like my son, for example, could never function in a setting like that. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. I'm just giving you my, uh, my own uh, um, view as a semi-outsider here. No, I, I appreciate that. And, you know, I would say here that, um, this is an example, and it's one of many, about where communication with your state is so critical, not just as an organization like you are leading, Jill, but as, as parents and stakeholders in whatever state's Medicaid program, um, you know, ad advocacy for 
you know, gaps that you are seeing, concerns that you have, um, preferences for, you know, to, to a state as they're making decisions about um, the types of providers that are going to continue to do business in their state, making sure the state is aware of your experience and concerns and feedback is, is really critical. States are, are making these decisions based on, you know, where they, where they think they are going to be able to, um, to take their home and community-based services programs, not just in a way that's going to comply with federal regulations, although that's, you know, typically um, a front burner issue for states to make sure they don't lose federal funding. But beyond that, and, and just as important, is making sure that they are understanding the needs of their state's beneficiaries and addressing those needs in the way they think is, is best. And to do that, they need input. Um, and, and it's a statement of fact that some states are better at, at requesting and soliciting stakeholder input than others. And so I would encourage whoever is listening to this in whatever state you live in, um, you know, to, to make sure your state is aware of your viewpoint and you can communicate to them through case managers that are, uh, you know, assigned to you or your family member. Um, you should probably have contact points um, you know, what for your state Medicaid agency, if not every Medicaid agency has a website um, where there should be some information about how to how to submit feedback. And there are expectations for public notice and stakeholder engagement specifically associated with this regulation as well. Um, this is something that is so personal to people. And, um, you know, this is not an academic conversation. This is talking about how people live, where they live, how they live, with whom they're going to live. And, you know, nowhere in the Medicaid program is it more necessary to have pretty consistent conversations between states and their stakeholders than in the implementation of this regulation. And so I would absolutely encourage you and your folks to, uh, you know, to, to uh, make their viewpoints heard to the state. and and. You know, hopefully that would at least lead to a better understanding of why the state's making decisions the way they are and this and ensures the state is maximally informed as they're making those decisions. I want to spend like a minute on heightened scrutiny because that has been the singular topic under the umbrella of the setting yes. that has <laughs> taken up, you know, so much energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, if you look at the regulation, it, you know, the, the criteria says this is what a home and community-based setting is, and it's all it's these things. The regulation also says here's what a home and community-based setting is not, and the only thing under the is not category are institutions, right. nursing homes, hospitals, ICS. Then there's these middle grounds of, uh, of these three types of settings that, um, you know, are, are not institutions themselves. Um, but are different enough that the the developers of the regulation, based on a whole lot of public input, decided needed this special look. And there are three types of these settings. And two of them are, even though these are not institutional settings, two of these, these categories of settings are linked with institutional settings. And so a setting that's in the same building as an institutional setting, like a wing of a nursing home that's an assisted living or a wing of a nursing home that's an adult day center. Those settings 
are called presumptively institutional. We, we know they aren't literally an institution. They're not paid as an institution. They're not, they don't have the oversight, federal oversight of an institution, but they are really linked um, you know, to an institution. The second category is a setting that's on the grounds of or adjacent to a public institution. So this can be like a, a cottage uh, setting that's on the grounds of a public ICF. Um, again, you know, the, the cottage um, might very well be home and community based, but because it is literally in the shadow of an institution, we need to make doubly sure that it's really adhering to the regulation. And then the third category, which is, is the, uh, the spiciest. Uh, is a setting that um, could be isolating to HCBS beneficiaries in comparison to people who are not uh, on HCBS. And that's really sucked up a lot of energy to be you know, blunt about it. Um, yes. And you know, we, we issued some clarifying guidance in 2019 about what isolation looked like in terms of a setting that would meet that category of being presumptively institutional. I, I'm glad to hear that you are perusing the reports that we're putting online. We have done eight or nine, I would say on-site visits uh, across the country to look at specific presumptively institutional settings. And those have brought the gamut from group homes to um, assisted living in a nursing home, um, intentional communities, farmsteads, et cetera. Most of these, settings have been determined by the state to be presumptively institutional and submitted to CMS. Occasionally we have chosen a setting, not because the state put it on our radar, but because stakeholders said, you need to look at this particular setting. So we go on site, take a look around. We have the, the benefit of, of paper that the, that the state's already submitted to us on that particular setting, but nothing is really gonna beat seeing it firsthand, talking to people who are receiving services, talking to people who are delivering services, um, you know, getting an idea of whether people can decorate their own space, whether they have access to food, what, if there's a visitor policy with, you know, truncated hours, if there's, if beneficiaries talk about their ability to go into the community, um, recognizing that we're all coming out of a very strange period of public health emergency. And you know, in, in many cases, we're finding things that need to be fixed. Um, but in, in some cases we're saying, you know, and what we're seeing here looks compliant with the regulation. Um, the purpose of these visits, it's not to say you are not compliant with the regulation today. So therefore you cannot be a home and community-based provider. The purpose of these visits is to say, here are the gaps that we're seeing. Um, uh, in, uh, in, in terms of what we're, you know, what is your, your, your operating today versus what you need to be doing, uh, you know, to, to be compliant. And in a couple of cases, we're saying it looks good. It mm -hmm. looks good to us. So we're hopeful that that really, I've seen, I've seen some of those, uh, yeah. those reports. Yeah. We're hopeful that that solidifies our message that we go into each setting with an open mind and, um, are looking at each one based on its own merits. Um, and you know, and is it the ultimate question though, that person-centered plan, isn't yes. it ultimately like, isn't that much more important than sort of kind of the, the checklist of, uh, you know, can they access food locks on doors? Isn't it, what matters to that individual should be driving the decisions, right? Yes. And in almost every case, 
um, we are noticing that, um, uh, I'm sorry, give me one second. No worries. My phone is blowing up and I'm saying I am giving a presentation. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, in all cases, one of the key things that we like to do when we go on site is look at individuals' person-centered plans, not to stick our nose in the life of a Medicaid beneficiary, but we cannot overstate the importance of that person-centered service plan in, in serving as the basis for how that individual is, is, um, is, is having the right kind of services and supports encircle that individual and to make sure the provider is understanding what that individual needs. And, you know, I should say here that person-centered planning does not rest solely on the shoulders of a setting, an individual setting. This is really a state level requirement. And we are pointing that out in every case to the state because so far everywhere we've been have in have have shown us that there is room for improvement on person-centered planning. And so we're saying to the state, you and your whatever entity that you're using to develop these person-centered plans, care managers, support coordinators, your managed care plans, whatever, you and that entity need to up your game in terms of making sure these person-centered service plans are meeting the, the expectations and the regulations. Because otherwise that is going to disadvantage the setting in being able to, to understand how they take that person-centered plan and translate it into the, the supports that individual needs to integrate in, into their community. And so oftentimes what we're seeing is a very generic document that doesn't give us any insight into what that individual wants or needs uh, or um, you know, re requires in the form of support to be able to, to you know, accomplish their goals. Um, and so that does need to be uh, solidified across the country. And we have taken that to heart and we're going to be continuing to release some tools uh, for states around person-centered planning. Um, and so the, the purpose of these site visits is not to make sure that every single person is integrating in their community, you know, in the same way. It's to make sure that the model of service delivery that that setting in place. And so that's the advice that you're seeing in some of these heightened scrutiny reports. This setting needs to um, make modifications to its method of service delivery like developing partnerships with community organizations, um, providing guidance to their residents on how to use public transportation if public transportation is available. Um, you know, developing partnerships with various houses of worship and you know, various community organizations. Oops, no, we're losing you again. Oh no. <laughs> but the goal is to Oh, Sorry. I'm reconnecting. Yeah, I know. I heard you. Uh, um, the, the goal is to, um, you know, make sure that uh, a Medicaid HCBS beneficiary is integrating with that community the same way that um, somebody not relying on Medicaid HCBS is, into, is integrating with that community.
Okay. Well, we could talk about this for days, but we won't. Because <laughs> I know you have a life and you have all these calls coming in. I've got to go take care of my daughter. Speaking of Medicaid beneficiaries, and um, I, uh, I really, really appreciate um, all your time and all the details that you shared with us, all the background, all the advice, all the perspective um, that you've given. Um, I'm just so grateful to you. And um, I'm so honored to be the first podcast <laughs> that, that you've appeared on. Um, as I said, this, In my life, be, yes. this will be by far our number one. People were so interested in hearing from you. And, um, and I know there's so much more work to be done out in the community um, with our, medic, our scant Medicaid dollars, you know, to make sure that they're serving our community. We have so much more work to do. Um, I really think uh, that, um, you know, the fact that CMS is, is in, in your, in, in the guise of you is willing to interact with us directly is just so helpful to us. So I really, really appreciate it. Um, and I wish you a very happy, um, what will be Easter, Passover, everything weekend. Thank you so much, Joe, for having me. Um, it's, it's really my pleasure. This is, um, a very big boat that we are all in together. And, you know, we are um, committed as, as the federal government in you know, being as transparent as possible, as being as helpful as possible. Uh, and, um, you know, you have a link in to CMCS in, in the form of me. And, um, you know, feel free to continue to reach out to me. Feel free to reach out to your states as well. They are key, key decision makers. Um, but we share so many of the same goals at, at making sure individuals live as rich a life as possible, even in a hard environment that we are living in right now to do it. And it necessitates us keeping in close touch and sharing perspectives and hearing each other. And I'm more than happy to continue to do that. Well, thank you. Thank you so, so much. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Confidential. If you'd like to learn more, share an idea for an episode, or become a sponsor, please visit us at autismconfidential.org. The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual speakers. Content presented is for informational purposes only, and we do not provide any medical or legal advice. Music